Our Father in heaven, it's not by accident that any of us are sitting here in this sanctuary today. We have come to offer our praise and our worship to you in a corporate way. And we thank you that we as a people can gather in this building freely uh, without fear of reprisal. We thank you for the fact that you are with us, that your spirit dwells in us, uh, that you have formed and created this local body of believers as you have. It is a wonder, Lord, to behold a people coming from many nations uh, to bring unified worship to you. So we thank you for what you have done here, and we pray now as we open your word once again that you would be honored and glorified and that blessing for your people would come as we consider the things once again in your word. We pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Last I checked, there are 193 nations in our world. In our congregation here at Snowden, we have 26 of those 193 nations represented, at least uh, according to the sign-up sheet that we provided over the last several weeks. 26 nations whose flags are represented in our sanctuary today. And that number, 26, means that 13% of the world's nations are represented here in our church. Friends, we need to reckon with the fact and enjoy the fact that as a church, we are a rare treasure on the Canadian scene where the vast majority of evangelical churches are rather monotone in their makeup. This month, we're taking all four Sundays to celebrate what God has done and what God is doing here at Snowden in terms of making us a multi-ethnic body of believers, a local church that reflects the vision of God for his multicolored bride. Now, all I want to do here this morning is to give you a sketch or a sort of basic outline of God's design for the people groups that he has created. God's design for the nations. What we're doing this morning is we're attempting to lay down a basic biblical theology of the nations. And toward the end today, we're going to arrive at our Ephesians 2 passage, but we're going to take the long way into Ephesians 2, just to give you a little forewarning there. Now, I must say that I have to give full credit where credit is due. A lot of what I'm going to say this morning has been gleaned in particular from my reading of the works of Christopher J.H. Wright, and also from a course that I took with Dr. Wright about seven years ago uh, at Regent College in Vancouver. So if you've read any of Chris Wright's stuff, uh, most of what I'm going to say today will sound pretty familiar. He's a contemporary author who's done some, what I would consider, just excellent work on the subject of God and the nations. As we think about God and the nations, God and his relationship to the nations or to the people groups of the world, the best place to start is right near the beginning of the Bible. I hope you have a Bible with you. Things were great in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Things were working in those chapters in the way of blessing. But then beginning at Genesis 3, 
and the fall of humankind into rebellion against God, things went very awry. Genesis chapter 3 through Genesis chapter 11 is really a study, several chapters long study, on how God's good creation was defaced and corrupted by human sin. And in Genesis 11 in particular, what we have in Genesis 11 is a little vignette, a dark and tragic vignette concerning the nations of the earth coming together without consulting God. They come together in order to build a city and a tower called Babel, which was, among other things, Babel was a defiant attempt to manage God. And God's reaction to that construction project was to arrive in judgment. What God did in that instance is he destroyed the common language that had united people. Now, a linguistic confusion descended on the nations and God scattered the nations over the face of the earth. And from that point on, we have incidents of political competition and cultural division and wars among people groups. All these things began after Genesis 11 to rise dramatically. Genesis 11 is like the final, to use a musical analogy, it's like the final dissonant, unpleasant chord that closes off Genesis 3 through 11. You finish reading Genesis 11 and you have to wonder, is God's relationship with the nations now terminated? And then comes Genesis 12 a major, massive component of Genesis 12 is a restoration plan for the nations. A plan that is hatched by God himself. And this restoration plan of God is a plan that narrows down now. It narrows down from all the nations of the world, which had been the focus of Genesis 11, now to a single geriatric man named Abraham and his geriatric wife named Sarah. Now, obviously, ageism has never been a thing for God. God chose, we need to understand, he chose an elderly man and his wife to carry out his purpose. And, of course, God can still do that and still does do that. In Genesis 12:2, God makes covenant with the aged Abraham. God tells Abraham that a great nation will arise out of the progeny of Abraham. And in Genesis 12:3, God tells Abraham this, that all the families of the earth will receive blessing in Abraham. See, friends, God has an answer for the global tragedy of Genesis 3 through 11. God has a remedy for the nations and his remedy involves Abraham and Abraham's children. And now from this early stage of Genesis, 
right through the rest of the entire Bible, we see God unfolding his restoration plan for the nations. One of the greatest themes of the Bible is God's mission to the nations. Just consider this fact with me. In Genesis chapter 10, which is right before the Genesis 11 Tower of Babel tragedy, in Genesis 10, we have the repeated language throughout the chapter of clans, lands, languages, and nations. And then way over at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 7-9, we have strikingly similar language there of nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. But now instead of rebelling against God, as in Genesis 11, the nations in Revelation 7 are redeemed by God. They are worshiping God before his throne. So that there are these bookends... In the Bible, the nations in proud rebellion at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and then the nations worshiping God in Revelation 7-9 and the nations enjoying the leaves of the tree of life in Revelation 22, verse 2. And the leaves of the tree of life are for what? For the healing of the nations. So the Bible is bookended in this way, international rebellion at the beginning and international worship at the end. And in between the bookends, we have page after page, paragraph after paragraph of God working out his restoration plan for the nations. And again, The bedrock of God's plan for the restoration of the nations is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now, as Bible readers, one thing that we absolutely need to be crystal clear on is the reason why God elected Abraham in the first place and then grew the nation of Israel out of Abraham's offspring. Why did God do this? The question is, why Israel? Why did God form this nation called Israel in the first place? And the answer is right there in Genesis 12:3. Abraham and the offspring of Abraham called Israel were created to bring blessing to the nations of the earth. That was the reason for Israel's origin, for their very creation. Israel was not created to be an end unto themselves. They arose in God's design to be the vehicle through which God would bless the entire globe of people groups. When God called this single elderly man Abraham... God had all nations in clear view. He had you and I in clear view. Every people group. The particular Abraham and Israel came into being in order to bless the universal, the world of nations. Chris Wright gives a helpful illustration here. He invites us to think of a group of spelunkers. You know what spelunkers are? Cave explorers. And this group of cave explorers gets trapped 
deep in a cave. Just imagine this picture in your mind's eye. There's a narrow little passage that seems to lead out of the place where they're trapped, but the passage is flooded, and some in their number are injured, etc. So the group chooses, they elect one particular lady in their number who is strong and who is smaller than the rest to squeeze through that passage in order to go get help. Wright says... The point of the choice is not so that she alone gets saved, but that she is able to bring help and equipment to ensure the rest get rescued. Election in such a case is an instrumental choice of one for the sake of the many. In the same way, says Wright, God's election of Abraham and Israel is instrumental in God's mission for all Nations. Very, very important. As Wright puts it, using Old Testament language here, he puts it, for God so loved the world that he chose Israel. It's an Old Testament spin on John 3.16. God so loved the world that he chose Israel. Friends, Israel was elected, as it were, to go through the flooded passage in the cave to get help for everybody else, to be a blessing to the other nations. I find it very interesting to linger over a verse like Jeremiah 2.3. The first sentence in Jeremiah 2.3 reads this way. Listen to this. Israel was holy to Yahweh, the firstfruits of his harvest. You see this? Israel was but the first fruits of God's harvest. Israel was only the initial pickings of a greater and wider harvest in the design of God, namely a harvest of the nations. Now there are many things we could say about how it was, how it was exactly, that Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. In fact, we could take a whole separate sermon series to to unpack that. But let me just say here, there are a couple of very interesting places in Scripture where the nations, listen, where the nations observe Israel in her relationship with God, and what the nations see Israel doing with God determines whether or not the nations will be attracted to Israel's God. In other words, the way Israel lived out the values of God or failed to live them out before the nations would either make Israel's God great to the nations or not. The first interesting passage of Scripture in this regard is Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 and 6. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 and 6, Israel is commanded to do the commandments of God and keep the commandments of God. And why? Because as God says, it will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
Israel's obedience or their disobedience to the commandments was in the sight of the peoples. And it was their obedience to God that would draw the peoples closer to God and to the God that Israel was obeying and worshiping. And then also interesting in this regard is Jeremiah 4, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 4, 1 and 2, where Israel is called to repent of their sin. And why should they repent of their sin? So that the nations would bless themselves in Yahweh and glory in Yahweh. See, Israel's repentance before God would be something that would work to bring blessing to the nations and bring the nations closer to Israel's God. Isn't this interesting? It's also amazing to consider the first three verses of Psalm 47 where we really see profoundly how the very history of the nation of Israel worked in God's design to bring benefit to the nations. Watch this. Look at these verses very carefully with me. First three verses of Psalm 47. Notice that Psalm 47 begins with a call to all nations, to all peoples, to give a round of applause to Yahweh, Israel's God. Why should the nations clap for Yahweh? The reason that the nations should be clapping for Yahweh is given in verses 2 and 3, but focus especially on verse 3 and watch for the shock here. This is very interesting. The reason that peoples or nations are to clap for Yahweh, according to verse 3, is that Yahweh subdued peoples and nations under Israel. (laughs) Do you see this? Nations... Clap for Yahweh because Yahweh subdued nations under Israel. Now, is this the psalmist just being very cynical and very sarcastic here? No. What's happening here is that the psalmist is saying this. Even the historical defeat of the Canaanite people by Israel is part of a larger story A larger story that ultimately will bring blessing to the nations. That's why the nations should clap for Yahweh. Even the history of Israel conquering nations is for the blessing of the nations. Ultimately, Israel's very history brought blessing to the nations. To summarize this sermon so far, The point we've been laboring to make this morning is that the nations ended up divided and fractured in Genesis 11. And in Genesis 12, God began his restoration plan for the nations, his restoration project, a project in which Abraham was elected so that his offspring, the nation of Israel, would bring God's blessing to the nations. Israel, the particular, was chosen for the universal. For the nations. Israel was to be the display case to the nations of who God was and what God was doing. Israel was to be the vehicle of God's blessing to the nations. The nations were watching Israel. The nations were to benefit from Israel and the history of Israel. The ultimate purpose of Israel was to bring the nations to the worship of Israel's God.
And that vision of the nations coming to worship Israel's God, of the nations singing God's praise, this is a vision that is trumpeted and repeated throughout the entire Old Testament in the days after Abraham, but before the birth of Jesus Christ. Just consider with me a few of the many Old Testament texts where we're given a glorious vision of the nations worshiping God, a vision which comes straight out of God's covenant with Abraham where God promised blessing to the nations. Consider Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Or Psalm 67, verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples, plural, the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples, that's you and I, praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 86.9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Psalm 102.15, nations will fear the name of Yahweh, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Psalm 117.1, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. And to those passages, friends, we could add several others from Isaiah and from Amos and from Zechariah and other places. The vision of God post-Tower of Babel, the vision of God that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed and would come in worship to God, this vision never changed. But the question is, the question is, what happened with ancient Israel and her mission to be a blessing to the nations? Did Israel succeed in that mission? Was Israel successful in drawing the nations to God? Well, in a word, what happened was that the distinctives of Israel, the distinctives that had been laid down through the law of Moses, distinctives that were ultimately purposed by God to be in service to God's mission to the nations, these distinctives became, in Israel's thinking, they became a means to hold themselves aloof from the nations. Israel began to perceive herself as having an inside track to God. They began to look down on Gentiles who were outside of the covenant, they began to judge the nations arrogantly based on their own distinctives. Instead of a posture of service to the nations, 
Israel adopted a posture of separation from the nations. Instead of a position of mission to the nations, Israel went the way of disengagement from the nations, all of which was part of Israel's defiance toward God that led to God judging them and exiling them out of their land. Now, friends, I must hasten to add here that you and I would do well not to hold this off-trackness of Israel at arm's length and sort of absolve ourselves totally from this folly of Israel. You and I are largely the same as Israel in many ways. I always say to people, if you want to read your Bible properly and in a way that's blessed, you have to see yourselves in the shoes of the bad guys. Otherwise, the joke is on you. Timothy Gombus reminds us, he says, we all want to call ourselves God's favorites, imagining that our own ethnic or racial group, our own nation is the one that has the inside track with God. I think that's a very important point. What Israel did in holding themselves arrogantly aloof from the nations is an all-too-human tendency that persists in our own time. So we have to be real about that. Israel needed a savior, and so do we. Now, despite Israel's failure, ultimately, to be a blessing to the nations, God, for his part, had not changed his mind about his mission. So what did God do? In the fullness of time, God sent the true Israel, Jesus the Christ. He sent him into the world. Isn't it interesting that the first verse of the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament, links Jesus to Abraham. And Abraham was the one God had covenanted with to bring blessing to the nations. There's a huge hint in Matthew 1.1 that Jesus will be the new Abraham. Jesus will be the one who will carry on and fulfill God's design to bring blessing to the nations. Jesus is the true Israel. Israel was tempted in the wilderness and they failed. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and he succeeds. He is the true Israel. Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. Jesus is the light for the nations that was prophesied in Isaiah 42.6. He is the light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel that Simeon identified when he was a newborn in Luke 2.32. Let's go at last to Ephesians 2 in our closing moments. Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15, are, we're not even going to get to verse 16. But these two verses are some of the greatest New Testament verses about God and the nations. God blessing the nations through the, the, the new and better Abraham, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul 
is writing here, and he writes concerning Jesus. Listen to what he says. Oh, listen carefully to what he says. May the Spirit come and bless his word. Paul says, For he himself is our peace. Notice that very carefully. Jesus himself is our highest well-being, our greatest wholeness, our shalom, our peace. In this verse, Jesus doesn't merely mediate peace. He doesn't merely give peace. No, he himself is our peace. Peace is personified here. In the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is our peace. No wonder Isaiah called him the prince of peace. And no wonder the prophet Micah could say, He shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Now in the context of Ephesians, that word, little word there in verse 14, our, O-U-R, he himself is Our peace. This word refers, in the context of Ephesians, to Jewish and Gentile Christians. Jesus is the peace of Jewish believers who are together with Gentile believers. Where formerly there had been that separation between people groups, largely because of the distinctives of the law of Moses for Jews, where formerly there had been really brutal animosity in the first century between Jews and Gentiles, Jesus himself is the peace of Jews who have come to faith together with Gentiles who have come to faith. Jesus is the glue, we need to understand, the glue of blessing that brings the nations together. He is the glue of blessing that makes them both one. Notice the text, that makes them both one. That's what Paul says in verse 14 as it continues. As Andrew Lincoln has noted in his commentary on Ephesians, he says this, in accomplishing this, making the two one, in accomplishing this, Christ transcended one of the fundamental divisions of the first century world. Just as Jesus transcends the fundamental divisions in the 21st century world. Amen? For example, when he brings North Korean believers together at peace and in fellowship with American believers. Or when he brings Palestinian believers together with Israeli believers. Jesus can do it. And listen, in Paul's day, it wasn't, it wasn't this way. It wasn't that because of Jesus, we need to understand this carefully, it wasn't that Gentile believers now conceded and became Jews. Nor was it that Jewish believers now conceded and sort of adopted the ways of Gentiles. No. This was something altogether different. This was a new creation that God wrought. Making the two one. What Jesus has brought about in his church is a third 
race. Amen? An entirely new man, which is neither Jewish nor Gentile. It is neither Canadian nor Portuguese, neither German nor Jamaican, neither British nor American. The church is a new man, a radical new creation in which cultural diversity still exists happily and will exist, according to Revelation, in the new creation as well. As Chris Wright has said, and I agree, one of the things I'm looking forward to most in the new creation is getting with cultures and people groups that in this lifetime I just haven't had the time to be with and learn from. The church is a new man, a radical new creation in which cultural diversity still exists happily, but we have union together in Jesus Christ. Paul continues... The new Abraham, the new Israel Jesus, has done what? He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now that phrase, in his flesh, is shorthand for the crucifixion. By his cross, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And probably, this dividing wall of hostility here is to be understood as the law of Moses, which, as we said earlier, the law of Moses was misconstrued by Israel to be a fence, to be a wall that separated Jews from Gentiles and caused all manner of hostility. The law had become an instrument of division in the hands of Israel, a means of extracting themselves from Gentiles, walling themselves off from Gentiles. The superiority that Israel felt as they stood behind their wall was the cause of much hostility from Jews to Gentiles and from Gentiles back to Jews. Christ Jesus, says Paul, Christ Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and he's done that by his cross. He is the peace of Jewish and Gentile believers. By his sacrifice, he has made the two one. And he did it, verse 15, by abolishing or by nullifying, it's a good translation, by nullifying the oppressive law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is, good way to understand this is, in Christ and because of Christ, there is a new covenant. Amen? A new covenant. A covenant which includes both Jews with Gentiles. The old covenant of commandments expressed in ordinance has been superseded by a new covenant that is inclusive of all nations, Jewish and Gentile. And Christ has done this, says Paul, that he might what? that he might create in himself. Notice the creation language. That he might create in himself one new man, notice, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Friends, note here the radical nature of what Paul is saying. He's saying nothing less than that Jesus by his cross has created a new humanity. 
one new man. And that new humanity is called the church. The church is a unified man where walls of national hostility have been broken down by Jesus, where peace between Trinidadians and Scots like me and Germans and Welsh and Japanese and Filipinos and Kenyans and Jamaicans and Canadians and Americans. The peace is Jesus himself. He is our peace here at Snowden Baptist. He has made us one. The new and better Abraham has brought blessing to the nations, and now the nations are gathered together in bliss here at Snowden to worship him. It's one of the major draws for the Dunbar family moving to Alberta from Montreal is to be in this setting. He's brought us together to worship him in keeping with the vision of Scripture. You are a treasure, Snowden Baptist Church. You need to know that. You are a declaration Think of this right now. You are a declaration to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places of the manifold wisdom of God, according to Ephesians 3.10. I want to close by drawing our attention finally to Galatians 3.29. Now, dig this. Paul is talking to the New Testament church in this verse, okay? He's talking to us, you and I. Most of us are Gentiles. He's talking to the New Testament church, and he says to us that if we are Christ's, then we are what? We are Abraham's offspring. Did you know that? We are the children of Abraham through our faith in Jesus Christ, even if we are Gentiles. And what do the children of Abraham do? They bring blessing to the nations. They make disciples of all nations, to quote the new and better Abraham. We proactively bring the hope of Christ into a dark world. We, the church, are the vehicle now that God is employing to bring blessing to the peoples of the world to bring blessing to the peoples that God is drawing into the worship of himself. Our identity as his church is a community of blessing to the nations. So as 2018 kicks off, let's be praying in earnest together. And let's get very creative and let's get active as the offspring of Abraham, as we seek ways to bring blessing to the nations who are all around us here in Montreal. For his name's sake, let's pray. Our Father, it is amazing to sit and consider your plan and purpose for the history of this world It is amazing for us to meditate and consider uh, the fact that all of us come from different nations and and how we as individuals and corporately fit into your plan and purpose. And it's all here in Scripture. We thank you that Jesus Christ has come to bring ultimate blessing to the nations, that he has formed and created the church to be his vehicle in the world to do that. We pray, Lord God, 
as we consider our role in this world that, Lord God, you would help us get creative in seeking to be a blessing to the nations. Help us to keep this word close to our hearts and minds for your name's sake. Amen. Go from here at the start of this new year knowing that as God calls you, he will also enable you. Knowing that Christ goes with you everywhere and always, for he has promised he will never leave you. Go in the name and blessing of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.